0: All right, as we begin tonight, everyone should have a copy of the handout and uh, the handout today on the front of it uh, simply is entitled The Covenant of Redemption and subtitled The Theology of the Bible, The Theology of the Bible. Now, as you uh, look at the handout tonight, you'll notice something that's different. Tonight, I filled in the blanks for you, and that is on purpose. Uh, I want you to be able to see kind of an overview of where we're going. Um, we'll probably return back to the, uh, the fill-in-the-blank. I know some have gotten used to that. We will go back to that. But tonight, I want you to see the overview of where we're going. Uh, when I mentioned the words or the phrase, the covenant of redemption, uh, we, are, we are considering something in this series uh, of more than just one topic. Uh, When we mention the phrase, the covenant of redemption, we are literally talking about the purpose of God uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, In a way, what this study is, is truly what we would refer to as a study of the Bible. Uh, You might say, well, isn't that what we do every week? And to an extent, it is. Every time we gather together and we open the Word of God together, that's indeed what we're doing. We're studying the Word but before we study the Word, one of the most important aspects to know is what was the purpose of God giving us the Word. Uh, some people have declared the Bible just to be a book. It's a, it's a book that gives us uh, some wonderful ideas for living. Some have suggested the Bible is a book of stories. Uh, some go as far as uh, saying the Bible's nothing but a bunch of fables and fairy tales. And of course, we know as believers that nothing could be further from the truth. But when we think about theology, again, without this trying to be so deep that we get so deep into the uh, intellectual weeds, so to speak, uh, understand that theology uh, is not a deep word. Uh, theology is a word that uh, gives us an indication of what the Bible is really all about. Every one of you tonight has a theology. Uh, every, person in the, uh, and every person in the world, uh, even an unbeliever, has a theology, a theology means, or theology means, what a person thinks about God. So ultimately, theology is the study of God. It's the study of who God is, why God does what he does, and ultimately, what was the purpose in God giving us the Bible? Now, some would say tonight, well, the purpose of the Bible is that so people could be saved. That would be true. Some would say the purpose of the Bible is that we might know the mind of God. That would be True. Some would say that the, the purpose of the, of the Bible uh, is so that we would have something to encourage us. And that is true. All of those things are true. But ultimately at the heart of God's purposes is redemption. Redemption. Now, the reason it's entitled the covenant of redemption is because redemption is based upon a covenant. The purposes of God are based upon the covenants that he has made. He has made a covenant covenant. With man Now, the covenant, not that man holds up his end of the bargain, but a covenant that has been made with regard to the need of man and his redemption. Now, you'll notice there on your introduction, again, I've, I've spelled this out for you tonight because I want you to see this. Simply put, the covenant of redemption is the view of God and redemption that interprets the Bible by the way of covenants. The theology of the Bible only knows one Savior. In both the Old and the New Testament, there is only one way of salvation. Mm -hmm. That one way of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time you've heard that here. We have been building and working and uh, strengthening and establishing a foundation for our church that this is the way of salvation. But we have to remember that our God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, He is a covenant God. Again, we're going to learn a lot about covenants. We're going to learn about why covenants matter. But He redeems sinful man through covenants. Now, we might say, Well, I thought He redeemed man through Christ. He does. But it's all based on the covenants of God, going all the way back to the covenants in the Old Testament and even as we move into what was referred to as the New Covenant. So what we have here is really an introduction tonight about uh, what we're going to be dealing with. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 2 this evening. We're not going to read all of this. You see there's verses 22 through 36, and I'm going to encourage you uh, to read that that passage for yourself. But I want you to notice something that that is here that is so important, and we're going to read just a portion of this. But beginning in verse number 22, this is referred to as uh, the the first sermon that Peter ever preached. Now, some people ask the question uh, what did uh, Peter base his sermon on? In other words, what material did he have? Well, what material, and I'm using that term very loosely, had was the Old Testament. Peter did not have a copy of the New Testament. He did not even have what you have in your hands tonight. He had a, if at anything, he had, he had scrolls of the Old Testament. He had portions of scripture the Old Testament written down, but notice what he says. He says, ye men, in verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, this is a reference to Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now he's talking about, obviously, what had happened to Christ, his crucifixion. You'll notice that Christ, according to verse 23, was delivered. Now we know how was Christ delivered. He was delivered by a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. He was delivered up. But that deliverance was not based upon the will of Judas. It was based upon the will and the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of who? Of God. In other words, Jesus Christ was delivered according to the counsel of God. Now, here's where we begin to tie these thoughts together. For David, David is what? In Old Testament, David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Now, there's so much I could say here, and I'm going to try to bite my tongue until we get there. Here's an Old Testament saint saying he sees a Jesus. He sees Christ. However, Jesus was not incarnate or in the flesh during David's time. But David says this, I have always foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because that will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption." Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Now that word patriarch is important. The patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. Now notice that right there is a covenant. All right, everybody see it? Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That oath, God had sworn with an oath to him. That's a covenant. There's a reference to David. There's a reference to the Davidic covenant. And again, we're not even gonna talk about what the Davidic covenant is about, but we're moving towards that, all right? So we understand here that as we deal with covenants, all right, what you have there, number one in your handout, and again, I filled in the blanks for you tonight, a perfect knowledge of the gospel requires a correct understanding of the covenants. Now you say, what does the gospel have to do with the covenant? It has everything to do with it. There is a doctrine being taught out there today that the gospel did not exist until Jesus was incarnate. Now, if the gospel did not exist until Jesus was incarnate, then the question I want to ask you tonight is, how was the Old Testament saint saved? If the gospel did not begin until Jesus Christ how was the Old Testament saint saved? See, there had to have been something that indicated that there was saving faith or that there was a gospel. There was something for man to believe in. More importantly, there were covenants that had already been made. So we need to understand that this perfect knowledge of the gospel requires a correct understanding of the covenant. Now, in our confession of faith, if you brought your confession tonight, that's fine if you didn't. You'll notice there's a reference in chapter 7 of of our Confession of Faith, paragraph 1, that deals with this. Now, I want you to listen carefully because this is building the foundation of the purpose of covenants. Again, if you leave here tonight and you say, I have no idea where we're going with this, it's all right. We are building from the ground up, and we're going to build all the way up to the very top. Here's what that that Confession of Faith says in paragraph 1 of chapter 7. The distance between God and the creature, that would be you and I, is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life except by some voluntary condescension on God's part. And this he has been pleased to express in the form of of a covenant. Notice it makes reference to distance. Distance not by miles, not by kilometers, but the distance between a holy God and a sinner is so great, it's insurmountable. That that confession says this, that even reasonable creatures And by the way, a reasonable creature is someone who's been granted the ability to think, to reason. Owe him obedience. However, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, that's eternal life, except by voluntary condescension by God coming to us. God's coming to us is based upon a covenant. In other words, God did not wake up one morning and say, I think I will condescend to sinful creatures. There was a covenant that was established, a promise that that would happen. Is everybody following? That's the idea. It's a covenant. It's not just a random thing that God decided one day, I didn't plan on the sinner, so I'm going to have to fix this. The reason God condescended was because we needed that we could not have attained that on our own so perfect knowledge of the gospel requires a correct understanding of the covenants again this is overview tonight number two theology is a study of god and his truths as they are found in the inerrant infallible holy scriptures now we're going to use our confession of faith as a help but not as our authority does everybody understand that? Where, Our confession of faith does not supersede the Bible. We're using it to help us. Now, if your confession of faith is right, and I believe we do have the right confession of faith for our church and for what, what the Bible says, it will verify what the Bible says about a certain subject. And that's what's happening here. We are verifying that this is what the Bible does indeed say. So theology is this study of God. It's the study of the truths of God. Now, when we talk about a covenant, all right, very simply, if I was going to give you a, a definition of a covenant tonight, very simply, it describes a solemn arrangement. That arrangement, though, is divinely written or divinely Put in, motion. in other words, a covenant is only valuable if God is the author of the covenant. You and I could make a covenant between one another to agree to do something, and our covenant would only be based upon our word to do it. When God makes a covenant, it is a promise not only that he might keep it, it must be kept because it's divinely composed. Is everybody, is everybody following that? It, God, God authored it. God divinely composed it. Now, what a covenant does is it does place obligations on each party. Okay? Each party has an obligation. Now, this is where we're going to start saying, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. The Confession of Faith just said we couldn't possibly do it. What kind of an obligation would we have? That's where the covenant's going to come in. Again, you are not going to leave here tonight with a full understanding, unless you've studied this for yourself. You're not going to leave here with a full understanding of this. But this is the way redemption would be worked out. A divine arrangement composed by God, an obligation between two parties. Now, part of the covenant that we'll be getting to is not a covenant between God and us, but a covenant between God the Father and God the Son, In other words, when was it determined that Jesus Christ would be the one that Acts 2 wrote about, that Jesus would come by the determinate counsel of God? When did that take place? That was based on a covenant that was made between God the Father and God the Son. In other words, it wasn't just, again, I'm not trying to be irreverent tonight, it wasn't a coin flip. Who's going to go do this? Jesus Christ was the appointed one, and the obligation was that Jesus would would fulfill that covenant. So now when we think about this, some of you have grown up and maybe never even heard the term or even considered the term covenant theology. Or if you've heard the term covenant theology, you've maybe heard something like this. Oh, covenant theology is that theology that believes in infant baptism. That's not true. Okay, that's for another day. But one of the things that came out Again, don't want to get too historical on you, but one of the things that came out of the Reformation, most of us are familiar with the Reformation. What came out of that was a rediscovery of doctrine that had long disappeared. In other words, there would have been a day and age in which everybody who knew the Bible and studied the Bible would have said, oh yes, I understand the Bible through covenants. But the Reformation brought something out that had, been, had, had disappeared. What had disappeared is a covenantal understanding of God. If you take away the covenants, you do not have redemption. If you take any of the covenants out, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, you take any of those away, you do not have redemption. You have nothing. Now it's important because here's what we do understand. That up until probably the last maybe 150 years, baptist, which is what we are, baptist would have made covenant theology the clear article of distinction in what they believed. In other words, it would have been easier for you to find baptists who believed in covenant theology than in any other sort. But yet it's disappeared. It has it has vanished. Most churches you go in today, you will never see in their confession of faith, a distinction of what we just read, for example, in our confession of faith in paragraph one, that God did this through the form of a covenant. So that that might be a little bit alarming to you tonight. In the Bible, the word covenant is used no less than 300 times. And it's either found in its actual word or the root of the word or even, you know, compound forms of the word in the Old Testament. And it's found 36 times in the New Testament. So you have over 300 times that the word covenant is mentioned in the scripture. So it's not something that we can ignore. So when we think about these covenants. We think about exactly uh, what God was doing uh, through these covenants. Now, back to that text that we looked at in uh, Acts 2, verse 23. Notice again what it says about the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God does not mean that God did not make his plan aware to anyone. In other words, that nobody knew about it. As a matter of fact, what we see scripturally is that salvation through Jesus Christ, but the Bible says, according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, How did God make it known that Jesus was coming? He did that through the patriarchs or the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, David, all of these men, he made it known to them what his purposes were. That's where we get the covenants. For example, the Davidic covenant. David is a type of Christ. You study the life of David, you see a type of Christ. Now, David wasn't Christ, but you see he's a type of Christ. And that's an important distinction. But those purposes were given in the form of covenants. If you divided the Bible up, you would find the Bible being divided in God's covenants. Okay? Now, there is a a debate out there as to whether or not does God work in covenants or does God work in dispensations? And we'll talk about that later. And the answer to that is yes. There is a variation between covenants and dispensations. However, some have varied, have veered way too far one way with regard to the dispensations. Each covenant, all right, had different characters. Each covenant had different, uh, was given at various times, different times, was not the same time, and every one of those covenants and the nature of those covenants, each had peculiar differences and qualities to them, but they were all based upon the divine grace of God. They were all based upon what God's covenant was. So a perfect knowledge of the gospel, as we looked at verse number one, requires a correct understanding of the covenants. So when we talk about theology, what are we talking about? We're talking about the study of God and his truths, like number 2 says, as they're found in the inerrant and infallible scriptures. Now many present-day Baptists I've mentioned to you have already left this. They have left the idea of covenant theology, and they have moved on to something else. However, if you study the history, and we'll we'll group these two groups together, if you study the history of particular Baptists and Reformed Baptists, now there are differences in those two. That's why when we talk about what are we, some people say we're Reformed, other people say we're Particular Baptists. I tend to say we're Particular Baptists because there are aspects of Reformed Baptists that we wouldn't agree with who have more veered towards the side of the infant baptism side. Particular Baptists never veered that way. In other words, they never saw that children, infants, who had no ability to believe should be baptized. Now, there is a group of Baptists who are, who are baptizing babies. I'm going to have to get too far in the weeds tonight. They're baptizing babies who are not, quote-unquote, saved, but they're part of the covenant. Now, therein lies a difference between what a particular Baptist would believe and what a Reformed Baptist would believe. Not all of them, but there is a difference there. However, those two groups, Particular Baptist, Reformed Baptist, typically have held to the covenant theology for all these years. They've never, they've never moved off of it. So where Particular and Reformed Baptists would be in agreement is that any of our beliefs regarding redemption should be consistently biblical with what the Bible says. In other words, if I can't find it in Scripture, then it shouldn't be my belief. It shouldn't be what I stand on. But if you're honest with the text, if you're honest with your Bible, you will find that scripturally you have to be covenantal in your theology. You have to believe that, we, that the Bible is written with the idea of the covenants being one of the guides. Now, again, some of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard this. And again, for me, I didn't grow up. I grew up in a Baptist church, Baptist church in all my life. Never, ever, ever was I introduced to the Bible through covenants. Never. But it's there. So when we think about theology, some people immediately say, that's dry, boring, dead doctrine. However, theology, if it's done right, theology, as it's studying the word of God, every true believer is going to say, listen, I love theology because it tells me and teaches me who God is, how God functions, how God operates. I am not going to be offended by doctrine. I'm going to say, listen, I love theology. There's a movement today that's actually saying pastors should not be theologians. Listen, you want your pastor to know his theology. Now, he can't be so far theologian that he, he, he neglects and neglects everything else. But we're supposed to be theo- theologians. We should know what we believe about God. Now, again, you came in tonight as a theologian. You have a belief about God. Everybody who attends this church has a theology. Now, as a church, our theology should be the same. Now, it's not always. There are times when, uh, and we've said this, uh, when, when we first came to this church, uh, theology was all over the place. And it was one of the things that I knew before I came in, we had to get grounded and centered on something because I didn't know what this church really, really truly believed I couldn't see it. I wasn't sure what it was. But what I found out it was, it was was a mixture of a lot of different things. It was all theology, but it was coming from different perspectives and it was coming from different avenues. Again, there are things we can look at scripturally, we can see things differently. We can even have different opinions about things, but understand our theology needs to be centered on what these covenants are. Now, I've met people in my life who are much better at articulating what they believe than others. I've met people who can tell you exactly what they believe, why they believe it, and they can, they can tell you this is right. And then I've met others who say, listen, I'm not, I can't really verbalize what I believe, but I know what I believe. And I'd say both of those people are okay as long as the one who can't verbalize it can't be moved off of what they believe. Does that make sense? You don't have to be able to verbalize it, but you should know what it means. What theology is, is theology is Truth. So what is the only source of truth? The only source of truth is found in the word of God. That's our only source of truth. Now, here's a good way to study the Bible. You should ask questions. You should read the Bible and you should ask questions. You should ask questions like who and what and why and where and how. You know, when you read a book, you do that. A lot of times people are reading a book and they're they're being introduced to a new character and they say, now, who is this person? And we even begin, if you're a novel reader, which I'm not, the people who read novels, they begin to introduce you to the family tree of people. And this person is related to this person. And if you miss it in the first few chapters, suddenly a person gets introduced in the middle of the book and you say, now, who is that? Well, if you'd have read closely in the first chapter of the book, the relationship was told who that was. Covenantal theology, you're going to have to know who the characters are and why and who and how is what gets you the belief of where you are. We look at the Bible and we say, well, this, these books primarily deal with Moses. These books primarily deal with David. What does that mean? Within those books, there's a covenant in there. That covenant sets out what God is doing. So I would tell you tonight that to have a good, solid theology, your theology is often born out of you asking questions. You know, I've told you, I told the folks that were here when I first got here, I love to be asked questions. I may not always have the answer, but I love being asked questions. I I think I even joked at the time, I said, I would love to have a line after any service with people asking questions. Because we should ask questions. You should not just say, Pastor said it, so make it, that's, that, that means that's all of it. Now, if he's sound in his theology, you can trust him as he leads, but you should also be able to say, no, wait a minute, I do have a question, Pastor. What about this? And honestly, if you're gonna be able to discern Bible truth, then you're going to have to be able to defend it. And why do you believe what you believe? All right, number three, the covenants of God have differed, or deferred, however you want to pronounce it, differed in their outward administration. But the underlying truth of grace through faith has always been the same. This is where a lot of people miss it. They say, no, 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 it it was different. In other words, the belief is this. God has dealt with man differently throughout time. In other words, how an Old Testament saint was saved is not the same as how a New Testament saint was saved. And I would tell you from a covenantal perspective, that's not true. Now notice what it says. The covenants of God are different in their outward administration. In other words, how they were given, but there's always been grace. Salvation has never been of works, ever. As a matter of fact, we're going to learn something. The ability of works ended. And you can answer this question if you can. When did the ability of works end for man to work his way to salvation? What, what book of the Bible did it happen and what character was it? Does anybody know? When did it end? It ended with who it started with. Genesis and Adam. That's when the ability to save yourself by works ended. Adam. Adam. So you say, no, Adam could save by, no, Adam wasn't saved by works. That's when it it ended. Adam did not work his way to salvation. Even in Adam, but the Bible tells us in Adam, all men has fallen. We've all fallen because of Adam's fall. And yet grace is there. We even read stories about Noah finding grace in the eyes of God. And people like to say, well, Noah found grace because Noah built the ark. That's not why Noah found grace. Noah didn't find it because he built the ark and then he got grace. That would be work salvation. So even Noah was based on a covenant. I bet you never believed that that ark and things that were built, there was a covenant behind all of that. It was not just a preacher announcing one day, hey, it's going to rain. Anybody wants to get on, get on. No. It's all was part of a covenant. And again, you can see where this is going. This is not going to be solved in a couple of weeks. So the covenants have varied. Now, in our confession of faith, paragraph number two of chapter seven says this. Moreover, as man had brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, when did he fall? In Adam. It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring from them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give to all who are appointed to eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and here's the key and able to believe. All part of a covenant. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is there more than one gospel? Is there more than one? According to covenant theology, according to what the Bible says, no. From Genesis 3.15, chapter 3, verse 15 forward. The only good news known to sinners is from the promise of one who would come to redeem sinners. The one who's referred to that would redeem sinners from sin, and it's referred to this, and would bruise the serpent's head. He would crush him. Jesus would be bruised, but Satan Satan would be crushed. So the only good news that the world has ever known, the only gospel the world has ever known from Adam until the end of time is what God through Christ has done. The hope in Genesis 3.15 was a promise of Jesus that was coming. The promise of a Savior. There are Baptist churches today preaching four Gospels. Four Gospels. that There are, there have been, there are four Gospels since Adam. And each one of them is because they say God has dealt with man in different ways. You'll see through studying covenant theology and studying through the Bible that way, you will find out that God has never had more than one gospel, just like he's never had one or two ways of salvation. There's only one way of salvation. Genesis 3.21 shows us God saves people not according to their works or based on what they deserve, but according to the unmerited favor and pure and free grace of God. And remember this, redemption is not man's search for God. God but God's gracious search for sinners. And that makes the difference, all the difference in the world. So number four, historically, theologians throughout the centuries have interpreted the scriptures through the covenants of God. And we've already kind of covered this before, but at one point, this would have been the normal. This would have been the norm. So how is the Bible to be interpreted? Should it be interpreted dispensationally? Covenantally, or should it be a combination of both? If you study history, you will find out primarily most of your historians, most of your theologians, most of your pastors and preachers and missionaries going way, way back, even before the 17th century, would have had a covenantal interpretation of scriptures. So you've heard the term dispensationalism. Now, I grew up being taught dispensationalism. And again, we're not going to go into all that tonight, but I do want you to know this. That thought and that interpretation of the scripture has only been around for about 150 years. It was something that came on later. Now, again, it doesn't mean all new things are wrong, but dispensationalism looks at covenant and says the covenant theologians have it wrong. The covenant theologians are baby baptizers. The covenant theologians say, and make this mistake, they believe, if you believe in covenant theology, that the church, you and I, have replaced Israel, which is what I've been saying the last couple Sundays during our Roman series, that that is not what the covenants mean. It doesn't mean God threw away Israel and the church has taken everything that Israel was. No, there's still a purpose for Israel. We've been studying that on Sunday mornings. We realize that they are not finally and totally rejected. God is not done with Israel as a nation. And we are supporters of Israel. But dispensationalists accuse covenant theology, people, believers, that you don't don't believe that Israel is important anymore. That's not what that means at all. The church doesn't pick up all the promises that Israel forfeited. Now, one of, the, one of the leading people behind dispensationalism was a man by the name of C.I. Schofield. Now, again, before we throw Schofield under the bus, don't throw him under the bus and say everything Schofield did was wrong. Schofield has a lot of good things to say. His study Bible I used for years, and there's a lot of, he's right on about a lot of things. But when he comes to certain things dealing with theology and dealing with these covenants and salvation, he has to twist it a little bit to make it fit what dispensationalism says. In other words, because there's a belief that salvation has not always been through Jesus Christ, he's got to make salvation work. So You know what I'm saying? He's got to to squeeze it in. So these individuals again, who've come onto the scene later, they believe in dispensation. I was raised in dispensationalist churches. Again, it's, it is all that I knew. Now, there are hybrids. There are things that now take both of those positions. And so it's, it's, and again, I don't want to get too far off on that. But the idea there is, is that covenant theology has historically been that which way we have, have, have gone. So number five. The Old Testament saints, just like the New Testament saints, were accepted and declared righteous before God by faith alone. Okay, acceptance and declared righteous by, but before God, by faith alone. Faith alone, remember, faith is a gift of God. When we read in the Bible, you read about men of faith and you read that they had faith. Remember, faith is God's gift. So some might ask the question here, they may say, is there not a connection between the Old and the New Testament? In other words, if these things are so important, for example, how come we don't do some Old Testament practices anymore? Have you ever noticed that there are Old Testament laws we don't do now? That doesn't mean that it's negated everything. What's happened? Or do you realize there are things that we're told to do in the New Testament that they weren't told to do in the Old Testament? Now, that doesn't mean that one can be taken without the other. We understand the New Testament because of what the Old Testament says. Some of the things we're told to do in the New Testament and we didn't have the Old Testament principle, we wouldn't know why we're doing it. For example, the Old Testament Passover for the Jew. When Jesus announced to his disciples a new covenant I give you. He uses the word, a new covenant. He was announcing what the Old Testament had been declaring. Here's this covenant, here it is. So it's obvious that there are things that were in the old that are not in the new and there are things that are new that are not in the old. However... There is a connection between the two. And only when I look at the Old and the New Testament and I look at it through a a covenantal and a Christ-centered interpretation of the Bible can I even understand what the whole purpose of the Old Testament is. Because let's be honest. You take Christ out of the Old Testament, you're going to read the Old Testament sometimes and say, huh? What does this have to do with anything? Right? Because there are parts of the Bible we read and we say, you know, like all, the, like all the genealogies and the numbers, numbering people. What's this have to do with anything? And people leave churches and they say, I, I don't, why is he talking about this? What matters to genealogy? The genealogy of Matthew chapter one is a very important genealogy and it talks about Old Testament people leading to, and Jesus is in the genealogy you don't have the Old Testament, you don't even understand why does Jesus' name appear in there? Because he comes out of the line that was promised out of one of the covenants. So it matters. So it needs to be rightly understood that redemption has always been, as we began, by grace alone through faith alone, in one Redeemer, one Christ. That means Christ gets all the glory for the salvation of any soul. So again... You see there's a notation there for paragraph 3 of our confession. It said this covenant is revealed through the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. We're going to study that when we get to it. And afterwards, by further steps until the full revelation of it became complete in the New Testament. This covenant of salvation rests upon an eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. It is solely by grace. We know what grace is. What is grace? It's undeserved mercy. Okay? And favor of this covenant that all the descendants of fallen Adam who have ever been saved have obtained life and blessed immortality because man is now utterly incapable of gaining acceptance with God on the terms by which Adam stood in his state of innocency. One of the first dispensations in dispensationalism is the dispensation of innocence. Man has never been innocent. Right. Mm-hmm. Now people say, Well, wait a minute, no. They were innocent. No, we've never been innocent. And when we think about innocence, we realize that if we had had any opportunity to be innocent. Or we could prevent ourselves from falling into sin. But the Bible tells us that in Adam, all men have fallen. In other words, you have never been in an innocent state where you're not guilty of it. There's even an argument today that says, are babies really born in sin? I watched people on Twitter one time having a fight about this. Baptists having a fight about, is a baby really born in sin? And he were saying the baby's not born dead in sin. The Bible declares even from the womb. So we understand that sin, we're not sinners because we do something. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I don't have the patent on that. So what are we talking about here? Why is it the important way of looking at it? Well, because we look at it from the standpoint of basic interpretation forces us to find the simplest answer. Again, simple is not always the only answer, but oftentimes exactly what the Bible says is the correct answer. In other words, if I have to do gymnastics to make it fit, then I probably have something that's not right. In other words, if I have to kind of twist it to make it fit in, it may fit, but I had to force it, I had to twist it. I had to to make it fit where it shouldn't have gone. The biggest mistake people make is not just twisting Scripture, but they take, they get their theology from non-biblical literature, from books, from writers. How many of you are familiar with the shack, the book, The Shack? Do you know that there's a whole theology that's been built out of that book? There are churches teaching shack theology. And there are a lot of problems with that book. There's a lot of problems with the movie. It's got theological problems that run further. And there are churches that are using that and they're teaching doctrinal studies on that book. Now there's major problems there. It's a problem because even of its view of who God is. The biggest problem with the shack is how it views who God is and what God can be convinced to do. God doesn't change and God doesn't change because we ask him to change. So sometimes the non-biblical literature comes up with such confusing explanations that people don't even know what they're really saying. So only when we look at the word of God and study it from a simple covenantal position are we going to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. It hasn't been too long ago I had a dispensationalist ask me that question. He said, as a pastor, do you rightly divide the word of God? If you do, the only way you can do that is if you're a dispensationalist. So he basically said, you do not divide the word of truth properly. It's quite an accusation against me. I didn't respond to it other than the fact I said, yes, I preach the word of God as it is. So what are we talking about here? Very simply, the application for tonight, the eternal purpose of God and redemption can only be rightly understood when a covenantal and Christ-centered interpretation of the Bible is applied. So how am, I gonna, how am I going to understand the Bible only when I understand the Bible through a covenantal and Christ-centered interpretation of the Bible, when I apply that? Why do I apply a covenantal position? Because that's what the Bible does. Why do I p- apply a Christ-centered interpretation? Because that's what the Bible does. Christ is in the book of Genesis. You say his name's not there. Christ is in the book of Genesis. He's, his, his name is, his, his, his appearance is promised in Genesis chapter number three. Before the flood even comes. So when we, as we go through this, what we're going to do is we're going to get into, not next week, but probably in the, in the weeks, weeks to come, we're going to start actually looking at the scriptures and now starting to see, all right, Let's look at the book of Genesis. We're not going to do an exposition verse by verse, chapter by chapter. What we're going to do is more of an overview and look at the book of Genesis. How does Genesis fulfill a covenant? Where's the covenant in the book of Genesis? Where's the covenant uh, in Exodus? What, what, where are these things? And that's kind of the direction we're going to go with this. So there'll be a lot to cover. So as we think about this and we think about where we stand um, as a church, Right now, that's the position that we're on. We have a, a covenantal position, and so that's based upon what the Word of God says. So we'll we'll look at the uh, going one step further next week and do a little bit more into um, the various covenants and how all these begin to work. All right, anybody thoroughly confused? Okay, got one honest one. Yep, <laughs> that's all right. I have no problem with that. So let's go ahead and stand, and we'll be dismissed.